Snappers, we've got an amazing show waiting for you. But first, you got to know, it's going to take 4,000 new members to bring you a new season of Snap. And we've got 200. We're behind, way behind. If you know in your soul that stories matter, even if you're undocumented, trans, brown, Muslim, white, female, straight, whatever you are, donate now at snapjudgment.org. So please pause the show. Pause it. No one else is going to do this. Pause the show and donate whatever makes sense to you at snapjudgment.org. Get great gifts, including a special session where Snap producers reveal their secrets of storytelling. Or get the Snap Live legendary film download or the Snap Music mixtape. Or get all the gifts. It's easy. Spread love one story at a time. Support Snap Judgment Storytelling at snapjudgment.org. Thanks. Nine years old, family Bible study. My father tells me that in the Old and New Bible Testaments, the firstborn son inherits the family holdings, which means as the firstborn son, I stand to inherit our farm. He tells me that the Bible demands I assume responsibility. My brother laughs in glee. Not upset about being cut out, no. Because our farm is not really a farm in that sense. It is land, to be sure. 88 acres of rural Michigan swampland. But the term farm implies crops and barns and tractors and animals and fences and we don't have any of those things. I don't imagine we'll be getting any anytime soon. The only thing I'm going to inherit is work. Daily backbreaking labor in the fields under the hot sun for no wages forever while my brother gets to be free. No! No! No. I'd read a little bit of the Bible myself at that point, which gives me an idea. The next day, I scribble a note on a piece of paper and solemnly present it to my brother. It's a gift, I promise. He opens it up and reads the big cursive letter saying that Glenn Washington does hereby transfer the entirety of his birthright to Sean Washington under the eyes of God. You you can't do that. I already did it. It's your farm now. My brother starts screaming, Mama! Mama! Of course, I get a whipping for making mockery of the Lord's blessings, but I was going to get a whipping. Still, I don't remember ever sleeping as good as I did that night. Today, on Snap Judgment, from WNYC, we proudly present The Born Identity. Amazing stories from real people struggling to understand the person they were born to be. My name is Lynn Washington. Farmers without farms are not farmers at all. When you're listening, you're listening. To Snap Judgment. Snap We're 
going to start out the Snap Judgment Born Identity episode by asking a very simple question. What's in a name? My mother would usually introduce me to people as Brando Skyhorse, comma, son of an American Indian chief. There was an incident in first grade where my mother had said, I wrote up this thing tomorrow morning in class, get up and you say this thing, and that's it. That's all you need to do. So I bounced in the class the next day, and, you know, everyone rose for the Pledge of Allegiance. I sat down, and my teacher looked at me and said, Brando, would you please stand for the Pledge of Allegiance? And I stood up in a very high-pitched, squeaky voice, said, this flag doesn't represent me or my people, and because of this, I cannot stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Brando had done this kind of thing before. It was because of his mom, Running Deer Skyhorse. She thought of herself as a Native American activist, and the two of them were this tight, mother-son, oppression-fighting team. We traveled the country together. We did almost everything together. If you weren't with us, you were against us. But everyone wanted to be with them. Brando's mom had this magnetic presence. People listened to her. People wanted to be around her. Wherever we went, they just gravitated towards her, as if she was a rock star. And you just kind of like bask in their glow. My mother was probably the most awesome person on the planet. She had, you know, the sort of long, uh, luxurious hair. Uh, She was always tricked out with like the Native American, American Indian jewelry. She would routinely go to jewelry stores and, you know, she would like feel the jewelry and she would be able to say, well, you know, I could tell from the way this jewelry has been like, you know, crafted that an authentic skin, that was her word for an American Indian, that an authentic skin had made this jewelry. Running Deer was powerful. And Brando says that also meant she was demanding, hard to please, and easily betrayed. As a kid, he learned how to deal with his mom's eccentricities. After all, it was just the two of them growing up. Until one day, when she told him they'd be visiting someone he'd never met before. You know, we're going to go on a trip, and we're going to take the train, and we're going to go across the country, and we're going to see your father, who's in jail. Brando's father was Paul Skyhorse Johnson. Brando had grown up listening to his mom's stories about how he was a big figure in the American Indian movement. That's why he was in prison. And there's a photograph where I'm sitting with my mom and I have this enormous smile on my face. We were waiting at Union Station. I'm so excited. I've got my little train outfit on. And I'm just literally, you know, about as high as a boy could be. And meaning his dad did not disappoint. And I remember him being brought out, and I remember him having manacles on him. He had this sort of jangled when he walked. He was 6'2", he was really tall, his skin had this like kind of deep red finish, and he had the long hair. The only thing he was missing was the feathers. Basically, I ran up to him and I hugged him, and I think like my head went up to about his waist. It just felt like I was hugging this giant redwood tree. And I had this sense of, wow, it all makes sense now. Everything she said was true. For the next seven years, Brando was the happy son of Paul and Running Deer Skyhorse. He wrote letters back and forth to his dad. And then, 
just about the time he started to hit adolescence, when he was about 12, that's when he started to ask questions. I was just kind of happy to go along with whatever she told me up until about sixth grade. It was around sixth grade when I started keeping score. He asked why they didn't have any pictures of his mom and dad together. The explanation was like, well, you know, there are no photos of him and us together because, you know, uh, photos steal an Indian soul. We couldn't have the two of us together in the same photo. I asked, like, how did she meet Paul? How did they come together? And the more questions I asked, the more ridiculous the answers became. It went like this for days until Brando finally wore his mom down. She had probably had one too many of my questions and had said, okay, enough. And so she produced a photo album. And, you know, there was this one photo in particular. It was basically like an 8 by 11 shot. And it was a posed photo. Like maybe it had gotten taken at Sears or something. It was this very sort of delicate-looking man with, you know, perfectly trimmed beard, beautiful eyes. And it was that photo that she pointed to. She's like, this is your father. This is who he is. I was just stunned. Who, who is this person? This can't be right. I, I don't understand. This was not the man Brando had met in prison. This was not the famous Native American activist locked away for his work. This was not the man he had hugged. This is your father, and and, uh, he was from Mexico. And then his mom confessed the whole story. She was not White Mountain Apache, like she had told him. Instead, she was Mexican-American, born and raised in East L.A. Brando's real name was Brando Ulloa. I was like, so... I'm Mexican? She's like, well, no, you're Brando's Skyhorse. Like, this basically changes nothing. For Brando, his whole world, his whole identity was falling apart. But for his mother, absolutely nothing had changed. To her, identity wasn't about blood. It was about who you chose to be. So she called herself Native American and told her son to do the same, even though they both knew it was a lie. I think that my mom chose to become Indian because she understood very early on that there was a power that resulted from being exotic. If you look at photographs from her when she was very young, she was, you know, she was quite stunning. She had chiseled cheekbones that allowed her to be mistaken for a number of things. So when it came time for her to decide to perform as an American Indian, it was a very convincing performance. She didn't really have to do much. She would have, like, the sort of Southwestern-inspired outfits, like blouses, skirts, things that look like you might find conceivably on a reservation if you, of course, didn't know anything about being on a reservation. She was a big fan of the, um, the Wild Western uh, pavilion at Knott's Berry Farm. Is that for real? You really mean she went to Knott's Berry Farm? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's very much for real. It was something that was uniquely her, because I think she really hated the fact that she was Mexican, hated the fact that her name was Maria, hated the fact that, you know, she felt like she hadn't accomplished anything remarkable. So that's why Running Deer, a.k.a. Maria Teresa Banaga, 
had made up this whole fantasy. The man Brando thought was his father, Paul Skyhorse Johnson, was just a guy his mom had convinced to help her pull off the charade. And there was that that sense that as long as she could hold on to this charade, that she, she was somehow still special. And she didn't want anybody screwing it up, least of all her, her child. His mom pretty much insisted that he keep up the lie. Brando says she threatened him and told him he had to keep the secret between them. I knew from a very early age that my mother could turn on me at any moment. There were two moms. One mom was awesome and loving and caregiving and fun to be with. And the other, just literally, you'd flip a switch, who was tyrannical, aggressive, hostile, yelling, screaming, paranoid, slamming doors, like you name it. It was uh, it, it was there. There was always some sort of, you know, um, threat of excommunication that I could be kicked out of the house at any point. Like, given the right circumstances and given the right atmosphere, my mother could kill me. So he convinced himself he could do it. But the lies started to wear him down. I started to resent my mother right around junior high because I'm participating in a con and I don't understand why I'm doing it. And I don't understand why we can't just tell people who we were. For the next few years at school, he kept to himself. I think I realized if people got close, if I really started to develop close friendships, if I had people that I could trust, I'd probably, I'd want to talk about it. So by the time 12th grade rolled around, I had my first high school girlfriend and we'd been together for about six weeks I, you know, I felt like, well, we're clearly going to spend the rest of our life together and we're going to get married, so I might as well be honest about all of my secrets up front with her. She had made a couple of comments along the lines of like, wow, like, you know, I'm dating an American Indian and that's so interesting and like, that's so cool. I had this sort of like almost melodramatic air like, oh, I've got this, I this thing that you should know about me. And I told her and she dumped me. She's like, look, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't be with you. Like, I, we can't be, we can't date. I can't date a Mexican. And so when I hung, when, when we hung up the phone, I was like, oh my God, my mom was right. She was absolutely right. Throughout high school, Brando was distancing himself from his mom. And he was hoping he'd get into a college far away from home and from her. So he was eager to fill out his applications. There was the box that was like, um, you know, check this for what ethnicity you are. White, Hispanic, American Indian, you know, Asian American, etc. Which one of these best corresponds to the life I've been living? I checked American Indian. That's right. Even though by this time, Brando knew that he was Mexican, he decided to say otherwise. I got a phone call at my house. I spoke to somebody who's dealt specifically with American Indians and admissions at Dartmouth. And he said, look, you know, you should, uh, you should come out and uh, we'll send you some plane tickets. What Brando didn't know was that Dartmouth actively recruited for American Indian students. So I got the plane ticket and I think the dollar amount was written on it. It was something like over $1,000. And I just envisioned this, this ticket. It's like a big sack of money that they had just handed to me. And, you know, 
somehow or another, I pulled off some sort of heist in some way. And the more I thought about it, the more it felt wrong. Ultimately, I spoke to my mom and she's like, you know, don't you understand white people by now? It's like, you're turning down something for free. You can't do that with a white person. Like, you've got to go. You're, you're insulting them if you don't. I got a roll of aluminum foil. I wrapped the tickets, like, very tightly because I didn't want to look at it anymore. Literally stuffed this, these tickets worth $1,000 in an envelope and just sent it back because I knew those tickets belonged to someone else, someone I knew I wasn't. Brando may have sent back the tickets. But I still kept passing as an American Indian in college anyway. He never unchecked that box. He started school that fall as a Native American student in Stanford's class of 1995. To be clear, Brando was a great student. He was in the top 10 students of his graduating high school class. But the idea that he might have gotten in with the help of that checkmark haunted him. It always felt like I was wearing dirty underwear. I remember freshman year that uh, for a few weeks there were a group of American Indians that would sit in the dining hall all at the same table. And there would always be a couple spaces, and, you know, they always would welcome anybody who would sit there. And I didn't. I would sit, like, you know, at a separate table by myself and kind of watch and observe them, but, like, I would never go over and say hello. It always felt like I was hiding something that, like, you know, only I was aware of. Felt crummy. At one point, he even asked a school counselor, did he get in because he checked that box? He's like, look, you know, for some people, it's affirmative action. Some people, they're really rich. Some people, it's nepotism. Some people, it's legacy. Everybody uses whatever they have to get in here. So let me, let me just say, when you have that conversation, working with what you got, is that you making a decision that your mother would have made? You know, I, I've I've thought about this, and you know, it, it's a fair it's it's a fair assessment because I think in a certain way, it, it was almost by continuing to be Brando's Skyhorse when I I got there, there was this sense of oh, like I guess my mother won. I do think that a lot of Native Americans listening to this, I do feel like a lot of them would be pissed off. I feel like they would be like, look, we have this history, you know, we've suffered for it. You benefited from that. What would you say to them? I guess there's two ways I could respond. I mean, one way is to say, you know, I think to expect that an 18, 19, 20-year-old student would be able to make these decisions on their own is expecting an enormous amount. You know, again, I was raised in a house where I was abused essentially every day of my life. To then expect me to go to Stanford and say, I have enough confidence to come out doesn't have any sort of um, connection with the way I sort of see myself 20, 25 years ago. And then another way is to say, that's totally valid and I'm sorry. You know, I'm really sorry. Brando felt that he needed to keep the secret for several years after college. And then his mom died of a heart condition. You know, losing my mom in a way... Uh, and, and I don't want this to sound cold, it, may, it made me feel free. And once I felt free, then I became more comfortable telling people who I am and my story because I felt 
I had, in a sense, um, outlived the terms of our contract. The contract was null and void because she died. The contract, that lifelong twisted agreement, it was kept in part because of his mother's threats. But it was also a show of Brando's loyalty to her. You know, she wanted me to be an Indian, literally. I think that's that's what she wanted. You know, some people want their sons or, you know, their children to be policemen or firemen or doctors. My mom wanted me to be an American Indian. Brando doesn't lie about who he is anymore. He tells people the truth. He's a Mexican-American who was raised sort of Native American. I, I would love to go back in time and I mean this sincerely, like I would trade this this entire story, all these people, all these characters, all these experiences to go back and be raised as Brando Ulloa. But I can't. When he was in college, Brando did legally change his name to the one his mother called him, the one that felt right, Brando Skyhorse. Keeping Skyhorse now in a way is... It's keeping my mother close. And I do want to keep my mom close. I, I do want to keep that connection. This is as close as I can get. Big thanks to Brando Skyhorse. Check out Brando's memoir, Take This Man, and his award-winning novel, The Madonnas of Echo Park, brandoskyhorse.com. Big thanks as well to Kurt Wells and Bennington College. The original score and sound design for that piece was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Liz Mack. Liz is just part of the team that made some special podcast-only Snap Judgment episodes, including the Heart's Desire podcast-only special. Get the Snap Podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. get this one. Now when Snap returns, what if you know that you are the chosen savior, but someone else thinks they are? When the Born Identity episode continues, stay tuned. Check it. If you want to know how to tell your story, watch the Snap producers give their top story secrets in under three minutes each. Knowledge. Power. Get the video download right now at snapjudgment.org. Or maybe you want to see the masters at work. You are in luck. You can get the Snap Judgment Live legendary video download featuring the most incredible live storytellers on the planet, including Josh Healy, Jen Cover, Jamie DeWolf, Don Reed, Joyce Lee, more. Snapjudgment.org. Snapjudgment.org. Help us spread love one story at a time. Snapjudgment.org. From WNYC, welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Born Identity episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and today, we're trying to figure out exactly who we are. And next up, we're going to go looking for Jesus Christ. And we find him in the most unlikely place of all, Ypsilanti, Michigan. 
1954, an article was published in Harper's Magazine. In it was a story about two women in a sanitarium who both believed they were the Virgin Mary. The patients were placed in the same ward, and after some time living together, one of the patients realized that since they couldn't both be Mary, maybe she wasn't Mary after all. She snapped out of her delusion, and shortly thereafter, she was discharged from the hospital. Milton Rokich read this article and thought, I've got to try this myself. Rokich was a highly respected chain-smoking psychologist with a no-nonsense attitude, but he was also known to go the extra mile to help his students and colleagues. And this story about the two Marys, it got him thinking about how we construct our own identities. Why do we think we are who we think we are? And how could he use this information to help schizophrenics? To figure this out, in 1959, Dr. Rokic found three schizophrenic men in Michigan who believed they were Jesus Christ. Rokic brought them together to live at the Ypsilanti State Mental Hospital. He called them the Three Christs. Rokic is no longer alive to tell his story, but his graduate students, the ones who helped him orchestrate this experiment, are. This is Ron. I'm uh, Ron Hoppy. And Dick. My name is Richard Bonnier. Do you remember meeting the three Christs for the first time? Yes, I do. I was a little apprehensive because I had no experience really with working or, quote, living with uh, chronically ill people. We all brought into a room, and the three of us met the, uh, the three of them. The oldest was Clyde. He was also the farthest gone. At 70, he was pretty senile, and he'd also suffered dementia from years of alcoholism. The second Christ was Joseph. He was a little younger than Clyde and used to be a writer before falling into a delusional state, believing that he was British and needed to go back to England to serve the Queen. The third Christ was the saddest case. Leon was in his 30s and was very coherent and well-spoken. But he had been raised by a severely religious, schizophrenic woman and now believed that he was God and that he had magical powers. Of all the Christs, Leon was the most regal. He even looked like paintings of Jesus. Dr. Rokic uprooted these men from the environments they knew, put them all in the same ward, and insisted that they have daily meetings together to talk about being Christ. Needless to say, they did not get along. They spat and ranted and argued, each Christ fighting desperately to assert his role as king. The grad students, Ron and Dick, monitored and recorded the three Christ behavior for 11 hours a day, every day, while Rokic came in for the group meeting once a week. He would lead the discussion, he would ask questions. Something like, how do you think so-and-so would feel about that? He was trying to get them to think about their beliefs and change their beliefs. And Leon said uh, he was trying to brainwash us. But somehow, amongst all the shouting... They did become friends. They began to share a certain familiarity with each other. They sat together in the ward during their free time, lent each other rolling papers, stuck up for each other against other patients, and... They even humored each other's delusions. 
It's like when I was a child and I would see all these different Santa Clauses, right? And how did, but there was only supposed to be one Santa Claus. But then my parents resolved that by saying, well, there's one true Santa Claus, but then these, all these others that you see are just helpers. And they kind of handled that in the same way, that they were the true God or Christ, and these, these others were, Leon's terms, were instrumental gods. It's not like any of them stopped believing that they were God. But they turned the other cheek and kept their beliefs to themselves because they wanted to give the others a chance to believe that they were God too. Which was shocking to Rokic because he believed that schizophrenics were unable to empathize with others. That fact wasn't shocking to Dick and Ron, the grad students. They'd always known the three Christ had feelings. They spent so much time with them, they couldn't help but get close to them. Dick's favorite Christ was Clyde. But every once in a while he'd clear up and speak of the old days on the railroad and going fishing and things like that. And he was a great raconteur, very warm. And Ron liked Joseph the best. Often he would want me to take him to a small store and he would buy a can of baked beans and open it up and eat that. And he loved that. And we would talk about books because he was a great reader. And he would pick up magazines and books and then throw them out windows when he thought people weren't looking. <laughs> Why? Uh, why? <laughs> why any of that? I have no idea. In my belief system, it did not make sense. <laughs> but Ron tried to make sense of it anyway. The grad students tried to be empathetic with the Christs in order to communicate with them. They didn't expect that befriending the mentally ill would start to blur their own realities. In fact, we used to often play with letting ourselves slide into a paranoid frame of reference and just see who could last the longest before he became so anxious he had to get out. I think it was a way probably of working through the fear that we encountered at Ypsilanti. But you can make anything into a source of paranoia. I'm sitting here in a studio, which is a perfect place to be paranoid. You've got microphones and all sorts of gadgets, you know, looking at you. You can wonder about who placed them there, who really placed them there. And go on and on with this, endlessly. The grad students began to resent Rokic. Here they were, questioning their sanity in an asylum, and there he was behind a desk at the university. We got so angry at uh, Milt. And it was that he was getting all the gravy and we were in here doing all the suffering. He was a smart guy, but he wasn't there. And whenever Rokic did show up, he pestered the patients with such a strong line of questioning, pressuring them to admit that each of them was the one and only Christ. This just confused the patients, and they began to backslide and squabble against each other again. I can only imagine the anger they must have felt towards Rokic. He always represented, I think, power, a lot of power. We did believe that he was behaving too confrontational. So Ron and Dick confronted him about it. I guess it was our feeling of, of being protective of these guys. He's a very, was a very cerebral person. He just disagreed, and that was it. Ron and Dick eventually left the study to complete their programs. And that's when Rokic's tactics got even more extreme. 
A journalist covered the story of the three Christs in the local paper. The writer was not kind to the Christs and poked fun at their situation. Rokic brought in the article and showed it to the men. Clyde didn't understand it. Joseph didn't even realize the article was about him. He said the men in the article were nuts. Only Leon understood. He began yelling, saying that he had been betrayed and that his feelings were hurt. Leon's reaction intrigued Rokic. His next plan was to create a positive authority figure for Leon. He hired a beautiful woman, Miss Anderson, to be his next research assistant. He basically had Miss Anderson flirt with Leon, trying to get him to fall in love with her. He thought that Leon would be able to choose to leave behind his schizophrenia in order to be with her. And Leon did fall in love with her. He was still reachable beneath that intense delusional system because he showed wishes to connect with people, like with the young woman research assistant. But unfortunately, it was just a tease. Because Miss Anderson would never really be with Leon. And Leon wasn't stupid. He soon figured that out. That she didn't really love him, and she never would. And so he withdrew even further, saying, Truth is my friend. I have no other friends. Using deception and entrapment to tap into where he had strong feelings was cruel. The recollection of it still moves me very painfully. I think so much more could have been done with him. If he had had more real psychological treatment at that point, he could have been helped. The study wound up lasting two years. Afterward, Milton Rokic published the successful book, The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. In it, he admitted that none of the three Christs were cured of their schizophrenic delusions. However, the study did cure a fourth Christ. Twenty years after the study, Milton Rokic wrote an afterword to his book. Here's an excerpt. I must confess that I now almost regret having written and published The Three Christs of Ypsilanti when I did. While I failed to cure the three Christs of their delusions, they had succeeded in curing me of mine, of my godlike delusion that I could change them by omnipotently and omnisciently arranging and rearranging their daily lives. I found out from my teachers, the three Christs, exactly in what sense they were trying to be godlike. They were striving for goodness and greatness. And such strivings, I came to understand, are really the strivings of all of us. Big thanks to Richard Bonnier and Ronald Hopp for their story. We owe a big debt as well to Milton Rokic's book, The Three Christ of Ypsilanti. The original sound design was by Leon Morimoto. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. More, more, more. You want more stories? Well, guess what? We're releasing a series of podcast specials you can only hear by subscribing to the Snap Judgment Podcast nowhere else. 
and just drop the Heart's Desire special player. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the Snap Judgment Storytelling Show. Step is produced by the team that knows exactly who they are. Throw your hands in the air for the Uber producer, Mark Ristich. Pat Mercedes Miller takes names. Anna Sussman plays games. Joe Rosenberg likes planes. Nancy Lopez shares the blame. Davey Kim sings in the rain. Lisa Egan knows James. Liz Mack thinks James is lame. Renzel Gorio brings the pain. Leon Morimoto knows no shame. And Jasmine Aguilera likes pickle juice. Now, the word is out. This is not the news. No way is this news. In fact, you could illegally transfer to your little brother ownership of a farm he doesn't even want. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. You there, Snapper, listening to the end of a Snap Judgment fundraising special. You right there now with the headphones on. Do me a favor. Go to snapjudgment.org. Give whatever makes sense to you to keep this show on the air. Snapjudgment.org. Thanks.